0: Well good morning Calvary family, turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 50 and we're continuing our study of the section which goes from Isaiah chapter 50 through chapter 52 verse 12. And if uh, you remember last week we kind of gave an overall outline of that section and um, we're going to kind of be continuing on that this morning. So if you remember from last week we said that this section Teaches us four key gospel truths, which all build one upon the other. And those truths are that sin separates us from God, separation from God causes suffering, the suffering of God's Son brings salvation, and salvation brings an end to suffering, and so you can kind of see how those are connected and how they kind of bring us full circle. Sin causes separation from God. Separation from God causes suffering. The suffering of God's Son on our behalf brings salvation, and salvation brings an end to suffering. Well, we covered the first two of those four points last week, and so this week we've come to point number three, which is that the suffering of God's Son brings Salvation. So look at Isaiah chapter 50. We're going to be in verses 4 through 11, which reads, The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples, that I may know how to sustain the weary one with, with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. For the Lord God helps me, therefore I am not disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up to each other. Who has a case against me? Let him draw near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who is he who condemns me? Behold, they will all wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them. Who is among you that fears the Lord, that obeys the voice of his servant, that walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourselves with firebrands, walk in the light of your fire, and among the brands you have set ablaze. This you will have from my hand, you will lie down in torment. Here we see that the suffering of God's Son brings salvation, and this is. This section, chapter 50, verses four through 11, is what we call the third servant song in the book of Isaiah. There are a number of what are called servant songs where the servant of Yahweh, the Messiah, in poetic form is prophesying about his life and ministry and the Lord is revealing that by inspiration to Isaiah who's recording it for us. And in this third servant song, there are four main themes. We see the theme of the Messiah's obedience. We see the theme of Messiah's suffering. We see the, the theme of Messiah's vindication. And we see the theme of Messiah's message. And so we're just going to briefly walk through uh, verses 4 through 11 together. First, in verses 4 through 5, we see the Messiah's obedience he says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple or as a learner. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. This is Messiah's obedience, his perfect obedience to his Heavenly Father. Every day, every morning, he listened to the Father and he obeyed the Father, and he didn't turn back from anything that the Father told him to do. This is something that Jesus talks about often in the Gospels. So, for example, in John chapter 12, verses 49 through 50, the Lord says this He says, I did not speak on my own initiative. But the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. And then in chapter 14, verse 31, it says, so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. So Isaiah chapter 50 and then in the Gospel of John and and many other places throughout the Gospels, it says that every morning the father would tell the son what he wanted him to do and the son would perfectly obey. He would do everything the father commanded without shrinking back from any of it, even the hard things, even the things which caused him suffering. And he was never disobedient to the father. He was perfectly obedient. The Messiah's obedience is a vital part of the gospel because you and I don't live that way. We don't, we can't say that every morning we listen with the ear of a disciple and whatever the Father tells us, we do exactly and we don't do anything else. How many of us can say, so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. See, he lived the perfect life that you didn't. He is the righteous one, the holy one, the one who is tempted in all ways as we are and yet without sin. So we see, first of all, the theme of the Messiah's obedience. Then in verse six, we see the Messiah's suffering. So back in Isaiah 50, verse six, it says, I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. So here in verse 6, we see prophecies that Jesus would voluntarily give his back and give his cheeks and not hide his face. He would voluntarily undergo this terrible suffering. Jesus says in the Gospels, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord, of my own will. I I give it voluntarily, right? Remember, Jesus told his disciples, look, there are legions of angels standing at the ready for my command. But he didn't give that command. He willingly gave his back to the whip. He willingly gave his cheeks as they, as they tortured him. He didn't cover his face from the humiliation and the spitting. He didn't pull away his arms from the crucifixion and when the nails were driven. This is the Messiah's suffering Back in the Old Testament, seven centuries before the Messiah, it was clearly prophesied that the Messiah would suffer and die. We see that here. We're going to see it again very clearly in chapter 53. The Messiah came first to suffer and then to reign. Next we see, though, in verses 7 through 9, the Messiah's vindication. The Messiah's vindication. It says, For the Lord God helps me, therefore I am not disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint and I know that I will not be ashamed. He who vindicates me is near. So who can contend with me? Who can bring a charge against me? And he says at the end of verse nine, they, all of his opponents, will wear out like a garment, the moth will eat them. This is a prophecy of the Messiah's vindication. And notice that the vindication occurs after his sufferings. After his sufferings, the Messiah will speak in triumph over his oppressors. This is an implied prophecy of the resurrection because it's only one who can speak after they have suffered and died who can be said to be vindicated fully. And it is the enemies of the Messiah who will wear out like a garment and be eaten by moths. This is a reference to the decay that takes place in the grave. The Messiah will not decay, those who crucified him will. Their bodies will decay in the grave, his will not. In Psalm chapter 16, verse 10, it says, you won't allow your Holy One to see decay. He was in the tomb for three days, but he was then resurrected. God did not allow him to see decay. This is something that the apostles proclaimed in their in their preaching in the early years after the resurrection. In Acts chapter 13, verse 29, it says this. When they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled this promise to our children and that he raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David." Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. That's a citation of Psalm 1610. So here we have the vindication of the Messiah. He will be raised. He will be vindicated. And it is his enemies who will see the decay of the grave. Then we see in verses 10 through 11, the Messiah's message. And in this message, there's two parts. There's an exhortation in verse 10 and then a warning in verse 11. In verse 10, the Messiah exhorts the people to fear the Lord, to obey the voice of his servant, to trust in the name of the Lord, and to rely on God. There's kind of four things that we're encouraged to do. Fear the Lord, obey the voice of his servant, trust in the name of the Lord, and rely upon God. That's the Messiah's message. And then in verse 11, there's a warning, which says that if people do not repent, they are lighting a fire for themselves. They're surrounding themselves with firebrands, and they will, if they don't repent, ultimately lie down in torment in the hell that they have made for themselves. And God says that his judgment will be to consign them to the path that they have chosen He says, you will receive this from my hand. You will lie down in torment. We talked about that last week. This is the Messiah's message. Repent or perish. Mark chapter one, verse 15, it says, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the Messiah's message, and we must heed it. So, in the third servant song, which goes from verses 4 through 11, the message of the Messiah is that his suffering will bring salvation. And that's going to be developed to much greater detail later on in chapter 53. Well, after the third servant song, chapter 51 continues that theme of the Messiah bringing salvation. Look at chapter 51, verses one through eight. It says, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who gave birth to you in pain. When he was only one person, I called him, then I blessed him and multiplied him. Indeed, the Lord will comfort Zion He will comfort all her waste places, and her wilderness he will make like Eden, and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the sound of a melody. Pay attention to me, O my people, and give ear to me, O my nation, for a law will go forth from me, and I will set my justice for a light of the people's. My righteousness is near. My salvation has gone forth, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands will wait for me, and for my arm they will wait expectantly. Lift up your eyes to the sky, then look to the earth beneath, for the sky will vanish like smoke, and the earth will wear out like a garment, and its inhabitants will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will not wane. Listen to me, you who know righteousness a people in whose heart is my law. Do not fear the reproach of men, nor be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them like a garment, and the grub will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. In this section in verse 1, the people are encouraged to look to the source. It says, look To the rock from which you were taken, to the quarry from which you were taken. Look back to where it all began. And then in verse 2 it says, Look to Abraham your father. So what is it talking about? It's talking about the Abrahamic covenant, God's promise to Abraham. That's the rock. That's the quarry. And they were taken from that rock, from that quarry. They were descendants of Abraham. And he's saying, remember that when Abraham was just one guy, I made a promise to him. And now look, there are millions of you. There's a mighty nation, just as I said. So look back and see how I kept my promise. I kept my promise to Abraham. I'm going to keep every promise I make. In verse 3, they're reminded that the ultimate fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, the promise God made to Abraham, would be fulfilled in the kingdom of the Messiah, in his millennial reign. And in this millennial reign, as is taught multiple times throughout the book of Isaiah, it says that the earth and Jerusalem and Israel in particularly will be transformed into a status just like Eden was. Look again at verse 3, it says, Indeed, the Lord will comfort Zion. It's a reference to Jerusalem. He will comfort all her waste places, and her wilderness he will make like Eden. And her desert like the garden of the Lord, joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the sound of a melody. When Christ returns and he begins his millennial kingdom, he's going to cause that barren wilderness which surrounds Jerusalem to blossom, blossom like Eden. There's gonna be springs and there's gonna be luscious vegetation. It's gonna be the most beautiful place in the world. Messiah's kingdom will be filled with joy and gladness with thanksgiving and the sound of a melody. Isn't it going to be awesome to hear that music? We get little tastes here that our choir so wonderfully provides for us, but imagine the millennial choir. I don't even know who or what that will be, but you know, as good as ours is, it's going to pale in comparison, although we'll get to be a part of it, so that will be neat. In verses four through five It says that the Messiah will reveal a new law for his kingdom. This new law, what the New Testament calls the law of Christ, is what will finally bring true justice. Verse 4, pay attention to me, O my people, and give ear to me, O my nation. You see, the nation belongs to the Messiah. He is their rightful king. And then he says, for a law will go forth from me. And I will set my justice for a light of the people's. So God had given Moses the Mosaic law, right? Moses had given them the old covenant law. Now Jesus the Messiah, the one to whom all of this has been pointing all along, says, look, when I come as the rightful king of this kingdom, a law is gonna go forth from me. It's not gonna be the law of Moses, it's gonna be the law of the Messiah. And this law will bring justice and it will be a light for all of the peoples. In verse five he says, my righteousness is near, my salvation has gone forth, my arms will judge the peoples, the coastlands will wait for me and for my arm they will wait expectantly. There's coming a righteous government with a new law inaugurated by Christ the Messiah himself. The law of Messiah's coming kingdom will not be the law of Moses from the old covenant. It will be a law which the Messiah says goes forth from me. And we see that law. Jesus comes then and in the Sermon on the Mount and in other places he lays out his law. He lays out the new law for the kingdom. Then notice that In verses six through eight, the passage ends with a beautiful reminder that the salvation that Messiah brings is an eternal salvation. At the end of verse six, he says, my salvation will be forever. And at the end of verse eight, my righteousness will be forever and my salvation to all generations. In other words, the suffering of the Messiah will bring eternal salvation to all who repent and believe. There will be this glorious, glorious kingdom that the Messiah will bring. So the suffering of the Messiah will bring eternal salvation. And that then brings us to the final major point in our outline, which is that salvation brings an end to suffering. The suffering of Messiah brings salvation and his salvation brings an end to suffering. Chapter 51 verse nine says, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. And I, I wanna draw your attention to that repeated word, awake, 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 awake. Those two repeated words that, that, well it's the same word repeated twice, occurs in chapter 51 verse nine. Then it occurs again in chapter 51 verse 17. And then it occurs again in chapter 52, verse 1. And so these are kind of markers of distinct sections here, or kind of subpoints in the book. Awake, awake, chapter 51, verse 9. Awake, awake, chapter 51, verse 17. And awake, awake, chapter 52, verse 1. Now... I preach from the New American Standard uh, 95. The Lord has blessed us with a number of very good and reliable translations. I love the New American Standard. I think it's uh, the most uh, accurate translation out there. But this is one case in which I think some of the other translations help you see the structure a little better because in chapter 51, verse 17, The New American Standard translates those words as rouse yourself, rouse yourself. And so you kind of miss the fact that it's the same Hebrew word as occurs in chapter 51, verse nine, again in chapter 51, verse 17, and then again in chapter 52, verse one. So I think, I wish the translators there had used the terms awake, awake. The translation is correct, but you kind of can't see that it's the same Hebrew word. And it's a good reminder to Read, when you're studying a passage, read from one or two or three of the good and solid translations. Read, you know, I like to recommend people read from the New American Standard, read from the English Standard Version, and then read from like the New King James Version and that will kind of give you um, a couple different uh, wordings that, uh, a couple different uh, translations to help you see the fullness of the original text. But these words, awake, awake, are repeated three times. And uh, I kind of joked in the first service that, you know, preachers love when the words awake, awake are in the sermon, right? Because like three of you just woke up and were, were like, he's talking to me. No, no, it's just in the text, but, but do wake up. <laughs> I kind of joke, you know, preachers either give a physical or a spiritual blessing to the people who come, right? You know, some get a good nap and uh, that's a physical blessing, and others get the spiritual blessing. So, But we want to at least aim for the spiritual blessing on at least most Sundays. Awake, awake. Notice, by the way, I just want to, this is a brief aside. The phrase awake, right? Be awakened. Our world loves to take biblical concepts and then import into them a meaning so foreign to the text, the Bible talks about being awakened. What does it say about being one who is, as maybe the common terminology is, woke? What does it mean to be awoken from a biblical standpoint? This is a plea, repeated three times, awake, awake. And I want to kind of take those three points and the three subsections that are there and draw 3 subpoints in our outline. So we're in the section where we're talking about salvation, bringing an end to suffering. And now we're gonna talk about three ways that Christ will bring an end to Israel's suffering. So the main idea is that Christ, the Messiah, is gonna bring an end to suffering. Well, how is he gonna bring an end to suffering? And we see three sub-points, three ways that Christ is going to bring an end to Israel's suffering. First, he will bring a return to Israel's land Then he will bring recompense to Israel's oppressors, and then he will bring rejoicing to Israel's believers. So let's go through those three sub points. First of all, with the return to Israel's land. Look at chapter 51, verses nine through 16. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon, Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, and made the depths of the sea a pathway for the redeemed to cross over? So the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion, and everlasting joy will be on their heads. They will obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies and of the son of man who is made like grass that you have forgotten the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth that you fear continually all day long because of the fury of the oppressor as he makes ready to destroy? But where is the fury of the oppressor? The exile will soon be set free and will not die in the dungeon nor will his bread be lacking. For I am the Lord your God, who stirs up the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. I have put my words in your mouth and have covered you with the shadow of my hand to establish the heavens, to found the earth, and to say to Zion, you are my people. Christ will bring a return to Israel's land. And he's going to talk at the beginning in verse 9 and and on through verse 10. He's going to remind the people of when God had done this before. He mentions Rahab. He says, awake, O Lord, as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. What is he talking about in the past? Well, he's talking about the Exodus. He mentions Rahab. That's an Old Testament nickname for Egypt. He mentions the drying up of the sea and the passing by of the, the passing over of the redeemed. And the plea here is for God to free Israel from her captivity and bring her back to the promised land, just like he did in the days of old when he rescued them from Egypt and brought them to the promised land they were in slavery in egypt and god with a mighty hand brought them out of egypt to the promised land now they're being oppressed by the assyrians and then it will be by the babylonians and the plea is for god to once again rescue them from their exile and bring them back to the promised land and verse 11 promises that god will do this the ransomed of the lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion. The believing remnant of Israel will return to the promised land. And he says, look, you can know the Lord is gonna do that in the future because of what you already know he did in the past. If he freed you from Egypt, he can free you from the Babylonians. And in verse 14, there's a phrase which tells you that this is going to be fulfilled in the near future. It says in verse 14, the exile, the exiled one, will soon be set free. So this indicates there's going to be a near fulfillment of this prophecy that is gonna come in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, and we see that that did indeed take place. But both the Old Testament and the New Testament clearly teach that not only will there be a near fulfillment of this prophecy in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, there will be a far fulfillment, a final fulfillment in the end days. And this is another example of of how I've described the prophets, right? It's like being on a mountaintop and seeing one mountain in the near distance and then another one behind it. And the Lord is showing them these things. And someone came up to me uh, after the first service and says, why do you think the Lord gives prophecy that way where so many of these prophecies have a near fulfillment and then they have a, a far or ultimate fulfillment? And I think the simple answer is because the Lord wants to strengthen our faith. He wants us to believe in the final fulfillment that comes at the second coming. And so what he does is he gives us a prophecy that has a near fulfillment so that we can see that he keeps his promises and that strengthens our faith then to believe in the fulfillment which is yet to come. And so the near and far fulfillments are designed by God to strengthen our faith. He says, look, The redeemed of the Lord are going to come with joyful shouting to Zion, and then he gives us an example of that in the times of Ezra and Nehemiah to strengthen our faith to believe in the ultimate fulfillment at the end times. At the second coming of Christ, he will regather the believing remnant of Israel from all over the earth. The ransom of the Lord will come with joyful shouting. They will return, and they will come to Zion. But I want you to notice it's only the ransomed of the Lord who will enter Zion. No one else. Only the ransomed of the Lord will return, and only they will enter Zion with joyful shouting and obtain everlasting joy. Jesus talks about this reality in Matthew chapter 25 when he says that when he returns, he will sh- separate the sheep from the goats. And Matthew 25, 49 says that the goats will go away into eternal punishment, but the sheep will inherit eternal life, and they will enter the kingdom. So it is only the ransomed of the Lord who return and come with joyful shouting to Zion. Now I want you to notice, though, this amazing promise in Isaiah 51, 11 is clearly and unmistakably, in its original context, given to whom? It is given to Israel. And nowhere, Old Testament or New, does it ever say that this promise will be taken away from them. In fact, If you look at Jeremiah chapter 31, which talks about the new covenant, it says that the new covenant was given to Israel. And it repeats it so many times, you can't miss it. And then it says that this promise can't be taken away from them. It's more certain than the sun rising. It's more certain than anything else that God will never take this promise away from them. This is a promise given to Israel. It is their promise. And then you say, Well, but boy, it sure sounds like you're applying it to us, and I am, and I want to explain why. Why is a promise given to Israel such an encouragement for us? Well, it's because when we turn to the New Testament, we see something absolutely glorious. We see that God in his grace has grafted in the Gentiles into these messianic promises, into the new covenant and its benefits. The New Testament tells us that Gentiles from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be grafted into this glorious promise. And this is made clear in the passage that I cited in Matthew chapter 25, because when it says that Christ separates the sheep from the goats, it says that among the sheep will be believers from all nations. Let me just briefly take you there to Matthew chapter 25. Listen to the wording. When the Lord returns in his second coming and he enters into the what's called the judgment of the sheep and the goats listen to what it says it says but when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him then he will sit on his glorious throne all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So clearly, the Gentile nations have been grafted into this messianic promise. Now I want to kind of zoom out and... Um, you, know, we, you know, we taught a whole class on eschatology a couple semesters ago, and so kind of for the detail, you can uh, maybe ask me for the notes from that or, or something like that. But a little bit to zoom out and just give you the big picture of what the Scripture teaches when we put the Old Testament and New Testament prophecies together. What we see is that the first thing that happens in the end times events is the rapture of the church. And then after the church is raptured, during the seven-year tribulation, there will be a great national revival amongst the people of Israel. 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes will be saved, and those 144,000 saved Israelis will go out to all the world, and they will preach the gospel to all of the Gentile nations, and a large number of people from the Gentile nations will also be saved during the tribulation period. At the end of the tribulation, Jesus returns in his second coming and he brings with him the church age saints and the Old Testament saints are raised and then he judges the people who survived the tribulation, separating the sheep from the goats, the believers from the unbelievers as described in Matthew 25 and then the redeemed of all the ages, the Old Testament saints and the church and then the tribulation believers, they will all enter his glorious kingdom as he rules and reigns from Jerusalem for a thousand years. And so the ransomed of the Lord will return and they will come with joyful shouting to Zion. So while that promise Isaiah 51:11 was given to Israel, since the gentiles have been by God's grace grafted into that promise via the gospel, It is a promise for all believers of all the ages, and that means it's for you, that means it's for me, and that is why we can rejoice in those precious words. We will enter the holy city with joyful shouting. We will watch the deserts around Jerusalem blossom like Eden because of the presence of Christ. We will have everlasting joy, as verse 11 says. Christ will give us gladness and joy. And it says, all sorrow and all sighing will flee away forever. I want you to think about it. No more sorrow. You've heard many sermons about that. But I want to focus in on the word no more sighing. Sorrow and sighing will flee away. I was thinking about that this week. When do people sigh I think there's kind of three kind of things that make us sigh. The first is we sigh when we regret the past. Because we can't change it. We just we think about maybe either something we've done which we're ashamed of, or some tragedy that we've experienced, and we can't do anything to change it, and so there's no words. And so the air that normally forms words comes out empty. Just a, a sigh. We sigh when we're regretting the past. Well, when else do we sigh? We sigh when we're overwhelmed in the present. You have a deadline that seems impossible to meet. You have some problem that seems unsolvable. You're just overburdened with the cares of this world, and, and, and you go to articulate them, and nothing, no words come out. It's just the helplessness of a, of a sigh. Just the, literally the, the air leaving our deflated lungs. We also sigh when we're concerned about the future. When we see the storm clouds of problems gathering, when we worry about what our children or grandchildren, what kind of a world they'll grow up in, and we look on the gathering storm clouds and we sigh because there's nothing we can do to ensure that they won't suffer. We sigh. We sigh about the past. We sigh about the present. We sigh about the future. But there will be a day when all sorrow and all sighing will flee away. And they will flee away from whom? They will flee away from Christ. All our regrets about the past will flee away. Every time that we've ever felt overwhelmed in the present will flee away. We'll never have anything to worry about in the future ever again. Imagine each day being a perfect day with nothing to worry about in the day to come. Hallelujah. <laughs> Sorrow and sighing will flee, they will flee from the king who brings a kingdom which will never end. And so I think the kind of application here is if you are weary and discouraged, take heart because the sorrow and the sighing will flee away when Christ returns. Your journey is a hard one, and right now you have sorrow, and right now you often sigh, sighing about the past, sighing about the present, sighing about the future, but there will come a day when all of that will flee away, and the ransom of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion. Everlasting joy will be on their heads, and they will obtain gladness and joy. Hallelujah. Well, the next way that the Messiah is going to bring an end to suffering is that he's going to bring recompense to Israel's oppressors. In chapter 51, verses 17 through 23, it says that God is going to take the chalice of his anger away from Israel, and he's going to give it to their oppressors the time of disciplining of his people will be over, and the time of judging the enemies of God will come. We live in a time in which, as the New Testament says, it says, judgment begins with the house of God. First, he disciplines his people, but it will be in the end time when that chalice, it says, will be taken away from them and never given again, right? God's anger will pass forever for believers but his wrath will be directed towards the oppressors. So Christ will bring recompense to Israel's oppressors. You can read that in verses 17 through 23. And then the third section is in chapter 52, verses 1 through 12, which is where I want to kind of wrap up this morning. Christ will bring rejoicing to Israel's believers. Christ will bring rejoicing to Israel's believers so again in the original context we're talking about how does Christ bring an end to Israel's suffering and first it's by this great return to Zion then it's to the recompense that is given to their oppressors and then third it's by the rejoicing that he gives to the believing remnant and again we are by faith in Jesus the Messiah grafted into these promises and so this is for us as well Christ will bring rejoicing to believers. Look at chapter 52, verses 1 through 12. Awake, awake. Clothe yourself in your strength, O Zion. Clothe yourself in your beautiful garments. O Jerusalem, the holy city. For the uncircumcised and the unclean will no longer come into you. Shake yourself from the dust. Rise up, O captive Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the chains around your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing and you will be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to reside there, then the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Now therefore, what do I have here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people have been taken away without cause. Again, the Lord declares, those who rule over them howl, in my name is continually blasphemed all day long. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, I am the one who is speaking, here I am. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. They shout joyfully together, for they will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. Break forth. Shout joyfully together, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there, touch nothing unclean, go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. But you will not go out in haste, nor will you go out as fugitives, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. This is referring To at the end of the tribulation period when the nations are surrounding Jerusalem and it looks like Jerusalem is going to fall, but then the Lord returns and defeats their enemies. And the watchmen will rejoice because here comes the king who has saved us. I want you to focus in a little bit on verse 7 and I want to draw an application from it. How lovely on the mountains! are the feet of him who brings good news. Now again, at the end of the tribulation as the nations are surrounding Jerusalem, the Lord will return to the Mount of Olives and this is a reference to the feet of the Messiah as he comes down off the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns this conquering king, this savior who comes with that long-awaited good news. The one that causes the watchmen of the city who, are, who have been staring out, waiting for the enemy to come. They see now the Lord coming. They will shout joyfully together. They will see it with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. So break forth, shout joyfully together because the Lord has comforted his people, he has redeemed Jerusalem, he's bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations so that all the nations ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. This same conquering king, this savior who comes in and rescues Jerusalem is the one who has commissioned us as the church, as his ambassadors, to announce all this to the world before it even happens. And I want you to think about the dichotomy between what the Scripture teaches about what we are to announce as ambassadors of Christ and then what the world tells us. What what, what does the world tell tell us? Well, the forces of evil continually bombard us with messages that say, keep it to yourself. Keep it to yourself. We don't mind inside your church, don't mind inside your house, we don't even really mind so much inside your heart. Just not out your lips, please, Keep it to yourself. Faith should be private. Keep it close to the vest. To try to convert someone is bigotry. To push your beliefs on others is rude. Those are all lies. It's propaganda from the kingdom of darkness. Satan, it says, holds people captive to do his will. And the good news is what the Lord uses, the proclamation of the gospel is what God uses to free them from his grip. So, of course, he wants you to keep silent. Of course, he doesn't want the good news of the gospel to pass their ears, lest it go into their heart and they burst out of their hands with the rescue of the new birth. The enemy of souls wants the ambassadors of Christ silent. Private. What kind of ambassador is it that is given a message to declare to the people and who says, Well, it's just my private faith? It's just my private faith. Friend, you don't have the right to keep this private. You do not have the right. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. How can we keep that good news to ourselves? If we truly love people, we will tell them. If we truly love people, our feet will traverse the mountains. If we truly love people, our feet will traverse the street to the neighbor's door. If we truly love people, our feet will cross those very difficult three steps to the other cubicle. If we truly love people, our feet will walk into a coffee shop to sit down and talk with an old friend we haven't seen in years. And at some point in that conversation, we as ambassadors of Christ will announce good news. Whether they respond to it as good news or not, that's between them and God. It is good news, you need to declare it. I mean, think of this. Why wouldn't we share it? We bring good news. We announce peace. Hey, you who are at enmity with God, there is a way to be reconciled with God through the cross and resurrection of Christ. Verse seven calls it good news of happiness. Jesus said, I've come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Why wouldn't we tell people? A voice which announces salvation, eternal life and says that our god reigns the one who is righteous and true how can we keep it to ourselves you know isaiah 52:7 is quoted in romans chapter 10 remember that passage where it says look how can they believe in whom they haven't heard how can they hear without someone telling them and then that same verse quotes isaiah 52:7 and says how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news my prayer is that God will turn this church into over a 1,000 pairs of beautiful feet who will cross the mountains of the world and the streets of our city and the hallways of our offices and the tables of our coffee shops to announce the good news of happiness. Well, this brings us to the end of this section. The next one is the section in which we find the glorious truths of Isaiah 53, really the heart of the book. And I want you to notice that in the preceding context to Isaiah 53 is this wonderful gospel outline. Sin causes separation from God. Separation from God causes suffering. The suffering of the Messiah brings salvation, and salvation brings an end to suffering. May we, as his ambassadors, take those truths to a world that are literally dying to hear it. Lord, I do pray uh, that this congregation would be a congregation of beautiful feet. Lord, that the truths that comfort our hearts and that bring us rejoicing, uh, that we hear in here, uh, will be taken out there uh, to other souls, other hearts who need to know it. Lord, at some point, someone told us or or, or told our grandparents who then told our parents who told us, but Lord, but at some point, someone's feet crossed the street to bring the message to us. Lord, may we be the instrument in your hand to do the same for others. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. i invite you to stand.